I was surprised in 2014 when the reaction to Russia taking Crimea was very mild, right? I mean, there were some sanctions, was mild. I, I remember teaching then too and thinking like, I can't believe nothing more is happening, right? And then I just kind of adjusted to that, I think. And now my reaction is like, wow, I should, like, I should have considered the fact that clearly Putin, he got a little bit of slap on his fingers then. Uh, he was not deterred from going further. Right. And so I think this is the big danger now is like what seems to be, again, a little bit maybe stronger slaps on the hand. This uh, was an, uh, an event that really, I think, shook what people believed was possible. But in retrospect, maybe that was really naive of us to think. This is the Globe Bears podcast. I'm Tiffany. I'm Maurice. And I'm Caitlin. Since November 2021, there has been a massive buildup of Russian forces on the Russia-Ukraine and Belarus-Ukraine border, as well as in Crimea. And this week, Russia started a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. How did we get here? We will hear from students on campus like... Hi, I'm Danielle. Uh, My name is Mason Latif. And our very special guest... My name is uh, Michaela Matis, and I'm an associate professor in uh, the Department of Political Science here at Berkeley. Um, I work on, you know, largely on sort of the intersection of international conflict and cooperation, which uh, conflict resolution, conflict management is part of that, and also on the role of domestic politics in international uh, relations and foreign policy. Let's start with some background. So a major part of this has to do with Ukraine as it's moving towards democratizing itself and trying to claim its own identity. And one of the things that Ukraine has been trying to do is move towards the West, move towards NATO. In 2008, the the NATO Bucharest summit, um, NATO took a, a middle path that ended up kind of being the worst instead of giving them the path towards a path toward becoming Um, part of NATO, which is a process that isn't guaranteed, or saying no, not to join NATO, they said, we will give you, we will start, get you started on this path in the future. And they gave that to both Ukraine and to Georgia. And as we know, in 2008, Russia invaded Georgia. Um, So since then, Ukraine has has kind of struggled with that. It's had several different revolutions. and recently, President Zelensky reaffirmed his, his wish to join NATO. Um, and Russia has responded by, again, as they did a year ago, building up soldiers along the border. Um, they did that to a much larger extent. Um, before they invaded, it was sitting at 190,000 troops, as well as um, a severe increase in naval resources that they pulled from um, around the globe to go into the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov. Can you tell us a little bit more about the invasion itself and what has been mm-hmm. happening in Ukraine? Yeah, definitely. So um, as we know, like we had this this buildup that lasted several months. Um, we had government, the different intelligence governments warning about it. So um, over Thursday going on, there had, as we had been warned about, there were the flat, false flag or, um, operations that included a car bombing and a pipe bombing in Donbass and Luhansk. And after that, Putin um, declared that these republics were um, independent and also signed a security guarantee with them, then moved into Donbask and uh, Luhansk area um, and increased shelling in those areas, despite no independent verification of any of these things happening and the Ukrainian army willingly refusing to re-engage to try because they had been warned about these false flag organizations. false flag operations. 
Um, and then on Wednesday night for us, early Thursday morning, um, the Russian army invaded Ukraine from several different directions. Professor Mattis, knowing this. Exactly a year ago, and we talked about the build of 100,000 Russian troops on the Ukrainian border. And so this was just a repeat. But you were confident at the time Russia would invade because usually it was a clandestine mission, how they took over South Ossetia, Abkhazia, and Crimea, and now Donbass. What makes this time different? I guess I would say I was not convinced this was going to happen because like you pointed out, it's not the first time, right, that there were forces that were being brought into the area. So I thought, you know, there's some going to be some saber rattling and some maybe concession and that there would be some potential deal, right, some kind of summit that, you know, would show Putin legitimacy and maybe he was acting out because he, you know, China was getting all the attention and that there could be some kind of you know, confidence building measures about limits to exercises anywhere close to uh, Russia. Like, I thought there was some possibility uh, for uh, for some peaceful deal. So I think it was actually in my conflict managed class uh, last week, Thursday, that I told them that I now I'm very concerned about the situation. Like, that's when I think it became very clear uh, that things were not going, uh, going well and that we should be watching the next couple of days. Um, I will say, though, that on Monday, I, you know, I was, I was in a way, like, maybe less surprised at that point. I mean, basically, I just couldn't see anymore how Putin could back away after the things he had publicly said and claimed. Like, uh, it was hard to see a way out for him. In an international conflict management, is there usually this build-up time to a conflict? It doesn't strike me at all as unusual, right? If you think to 2001, the U.S. issued an ultimatum to the Taliban government of Afghanistan to hand over Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And that was also, I mean, there was a wait span there too, right? I mean, before it happened. Similarly, uh, right, and then in 2003, uh, with regard to uh, Iraq, I mean, it was similar, right? Like there was a lot of back and forth about does Saddam Hussein's government have weapons of mass destruction or not? There was a huge effort by the U.S. to convince you know, the world that uh, Saddam Hussein did have weapons of mass destruction and that there needed to be a war fought, right? There were efforts at the United Nations. There were efforts uh, to convince allies privately. I mean, it was a long buildup uh, there as well. I mean, I, I think that's, I mean, in like World War II, right? Like there you, you started uh, with, uh, you know, Germany demanding the Sudetenland from uh, the uh, from Czechoslovakia, right? And so they got that in the Munich conference. I mean, it's like there. I think it's it's not untypical. Like I think that there's a view that there could be major conflict on the horizon, and actors are going to try to avert that conflict, and there will be diplomatic efforts before. Do you feel like there was a, a time that perhaps was missed during this, this buildup? Was there an opportunity that we had that perhaps could have been taken? So I guess as a, in, in general terms, as uh, you know, I, I teach in my class, I, I use the bargaining model of war framework a lot. And there's always a deal that can avert war, right? Like there's always a peaceful deal that could be had. I think the uh, question you have to ask yourself is A, don't really know how resolved the other side is to fight and what their capabilities are and how the war would end, right? Because that's the deal you would choose. And then you might not trust the other side to uphold whatever deal, you know, uh, you reached. But then you also have to ask, is that a desirable deal, right? Like, sure, the Ukraine could have given up and basically said, yeah, we will uh, never join NATO and we will sort of, you know, expose ourselves to Russian influence. 
But you know, is that something that uh, was desirable, especially in light of what Russia would do after that, right? I mean, that's the big thing here is that there's a whole uh, problem of like, where's is, where is Russia gonna go with this later? So yes, I think there was a deal to be had like in theory, but I mean, it was also in a way not to be had because you, you can't just surrender like the, the sovereignty uh, both over its internal and external affairs of a country to an aggressor, right? Like, so, uh, because, I mean, that's A, wrong and against international law, and B, like, what are you saying to aggressors in the world about this? Putin is, or has been acting as a, a genuine actor and in, in, um, negotiating in good faith. Um, and also, is he a rational actor in this? Because I know there's been a lot of debates about whether or not he's rational and what kind of he's basing his, his decisions off of. Yeah, I mean, this, this rationality question, I, I find complicated, right? You have to ask what it means to be rational. I mean, I think uh, that what it means to be rational is that you have goals and you choose the means that you believe will uh, allow you to achieve those goals, right? So like basically utility maximizing behavior. And so there, to call somebody irrational, and I'm drawing on other people's work here, is you would say that maybe a leader has extreme preferences, right? The kind of, so that would be one way of thinking of irrationality. Another one is they depart from sort of this means and decision-making, right? Purposeful behavior. So if anything, Putin would be on the extreme preferences side, potentially, like I don't buy that he's deviating. I mean, he has goals and he is using the means to achieve those goals. So to me, that's like still within the range of rational. I may not agree with the goals, right? Or the means, but that this, I mean, it's not irrational. Uh, the question is, does he have like really extreme preferences? And I think uh, the speech on Monday is the one where uh, I, that tipped off the world that he maybe does, right? Uh, when he essentially um, you know, claimed that Ukraine was a part of uh, and should be a part of the Soviet Union and that the, uh, of Russia and that the Soviet Union should never have been dismantled in the first place, right? And so he's making, I mean, those are extreme uh, preferences or claims. So in that way, but I also hesitate, I mean, to call that irrational, right? I mean, he, there's also a long history, of course, of benefits of seeming irrational, right? I mean, this is like very well known, the madman theory, right? I mean, Richard Nixon, uh, President Nixon already was very well aware of the benefits of uh, the enemy believing that you have lost your mind and you would go anywhere because you can convince them that you'll take actions that are just extremely coercive and you know crazy basically so you can force concessions. So, I mean, we see this all the time. I mean, Kim Jong-un is not irrational, right? Uh, he benefits from seeming irrational. So I always, this, this whole rationality discussion, I think is, is tricky and complicated. I'm also not, you know, Putin's therapist, right? I mean, you have to really <laughs> be able to, I mean, I don't know how you really evaluate that. So I, I like to stay away from that, just saying that I think he has more extreme preferences than maybe uh, most of us realized, um, but I don't, uh, you know, and it's not clear to me that he's irrational and like in a, in a way like that would have a real meaning. One of the clear distinctions between Russia and uh, most of the democratic Western nations is that Putin is an authoritarian leader and therefore have more power to make decisions without, let's say, like the legislative branch. Um, interference. How would the West be able to effectively counter this flexibility? 
I mean, for one, the, the literature in international relations suggests a leader like Putin, who's a personalist dictator, right? It's a personalist system, are particularly conflict prone. I mean, those are the probably the most dangerous of the uh, of the non-democracy. So it's in a way not surprising that we would see aggression from a leader like him. I should also say on the earlier irrationality point or rationality point. I mean, it seems that Putin might have been more isolated from advisors, uh, right, to give him uh, advice. And so that might lead to beliefs and uh, decision making that is, uh, you know, less optimally uh, rational than one would like, right? I mean, he just may not be challenged, right? That's also something uh, with a more uh, leader focused, like a, an individual focused personal system that he has basically, there are a bunch of people who will say yes to him on everything. I mean, as we saw in those sort of very staged meetings with his, uh, you know, with his cab with his cabinet, right? So how do you counter that? I mean, it's hard to say. There's also IR theory that suggests that um, in a way, because he is, he's uh, able to make any decision he wants, he's actually less constrained than a democracy is, right? For any international treaty, that you might need to make, like the United States has to say, well, I mean, we need approval of the Senate, right, in order to pass this. And so you can say we can't make those discussions, those concessions. Now our hands are tied. So that actually gives bargaining power in an in international negotiation, while Putin can't say, well, I can't pass that domestically. Sure he can, right? It's just him. Yes. So it's not clear that uh, being completely unconstrained is necessarily uh, an advantage in bargaining, right? I mean, we know that uh, that democratic leaders take advantage of their own domestic politics and saying they can't make those concessions. I mean, think of the Iran nuclear deal. I'm pretty sure that as you know, it's being negotiated right now and uh, seems to be going well as far as the news media report. I mean, President Biden is going to be able to say, well, look at all the uh, resistance I'm confronting domestically. You've already had this Republican senator signing a letter. We cannot make any concessions, right? And Putin can't do that. On the other hand, uh, Putin right, uh, can use force in a way that is you know, much less constrained. So I, don't, I think it's not obvious to me uh, that there's like a, on a negotiation level, there's a, a clear advantage for one or the other in that way. And speaking of sanctions, what do you think would be effective sanctions in this case? Yeah, I think that the use of sanctions and the plan to use sanctions is a great starting point in terms of deferring and you know mitigating any type of military intervention that said i don't think you know economic sanctions and particularly harsh economic sanctions are going to be a long-term solution if we look at other countries that we have used economic sanctions for such as iran or north korea where we wanted to dissuade you know the military or any kind of specific action whether that's nuclear arms involvement potential war you know economic sanctions can only go so far and in sometimes these in these cases that economic sanctions can either exacerbate consequences or make the conflict work. I think it's justified. I don't think the U.S. should go farther to keep Russia contained. I think there should be limits on, on what the U.S. should do. And I think in general, I think there should be limits on what the U.S. Uh, involves itself in internationally overall. Um, I think a, a good example of that is what happened in um, Afghanistan, for example, where the U.S. got involved and a lot of the U.S. involvement hurt the national interests of those countries. And keeping Russia contained in um, through military um, like spread is, is dangerous for the United States. I believe that current situation, I believe that's the proper response, but um, I think we can all agree it's not going to stay there. 
and if it escalates any farther, um, economic sanctions are only going to go so far. I don't think there's much that can stop the Russian aggression, okay. if I'm being honest. Back to you, Professor. Your opinion on the utility of sanctions. I will say that there is research that suggests that in a personalist regime or like a non-democracy as, uh, as, as Putin's Russia, is that you want to go, well, in general, you want to go for the winning coalition of the leader, right? In the democracy, the winning coalition is essentially the people who elected them. So you actually, in sanctions, should probably target everyone, so comprehensive sanctions. In non-democracies, the winning coalition are sort of whatever elite it is that keeps the leader in power, right? And so in Russia, that would be essentially those oligarchs, right, that, uh, that bolster them up. So targeting them, so targeted sanctions against kind of the immediate uh, elite and winning coalition and creating the sense in them and sort of their resentment of Putin's policies and sort of trying to weaken that core of power, that seems like what literature would suggest uh, would be effective sanctions. But I guess I, I mean, I would say um, that, you know, given like in light of what I said earlier, that clearly Crimea sanctions, right, the response, uh, the sanctions response to the invasion and occupation of Crimea were not sufficient. I think that the sanctions have to be extremely painful on Russia. And I'm going to say, as someone who, you know, is also German, um, I find that uh, I am furious at this moment uh, with the German government and their refusal to disconnect Russia from the SWIFT system. I mean, there are, the, the reason is of course that Germany has over years chosen to integrate far too strongly uh, with Russian, Russia economically, right? Uh, the business ties and especially the obviously the dependence on uh, energy is, is significant. And so it would be very costly for Germany to implement, like to cut out Russia from the SWIFT sanctions but at the same time, I mean, it seems like now is the moment to actually do this, because like if you don't stand up now, right, then what's going to happen a couple, maybe not right away, but a couple of years uh, from now. So I think, you know, really the, the sanctions at this point should be really, really strong sanctions. Of course, there's always the complication that if the sanctions are so strong, they're going to be costly on the sender, right, which would be in this case, uh, like Germany, European Union. Uh, US, I mean, other countries have joined too. And then how long are they going to be able to sustain those sanctions, right? And so Russia might just try to wait out uh, that. Uh, you know, if, if Germany only has six weeks of energy supplies, right, then like, what is it going to do? And so Russia could just uh, try to, to wait it out. Do you think the refusal to disconnect from SWIFT and more options? Because they've definitely said that they are going to respond to the Western sanctions as a result. Um, and to me, the, and says that they know the West's, um, that's that been their press releases, that they know the West's weaknesses. Um, and to me, that sounds like that's a threat to cut off from, from that gas source that we mentioned earlier. I mean, I think it's, so it's all of this stuff is complicated, right? Um, so uh, the, the tricky thing is like, if you, uh, cut like if you cut Russia out of SWIFT, right? That for Germany means it basically can't pay for its oil anymore, right? Or natural gas, especially if it's getting from Russia and other things too. So, so yeah, it cuts off Europe from uh, from those things and kind of weakens maybe the ability to resist uh, um, Russia's aggression that way. On the other hand, if you kind of uh, uh, right, you restrict Russia's oil, then it leads to oil prices to increase, right? Which actually empowers Russia because that's where they get their money is those petrodollars, right? 
in aggression in the first place. And so there have been arguments to not necessarily target oil-related stuff. And SWIFT is, you know, that, but other things too, of course, because it may actually benefit Russia. So this is going back to the point, I think sanctions are a very complicated subject, right? Like, I mean, we I understand the general logic of them and like, you know, can lecture on that, but like exactly the technicalities, I mean, this, this is very elaborate, uh, you know, comp I mean, this is why it takes so long to put those sanctions packages together and to actually activate them because it, you just have to weigh all these things and, and, and figure all of this out. One of the things that will minimize the effect of the um, sanctions imposed by Western nations is that um, China has in effect promised that they will continue to work with Russia, import and products and um, buy from them. So um, is there anything that the rest of the world can do about this or do we just have to accept that the authoritarian nations are gonna well, support each other? Yeah, I mean, I think that, so the, the China factor is, is quite interesting in this, right? I mean, uh, China definitely in 2014, right, was not a fan of Russia taking Crimea. And, you know, as recently, I think as last week, uh, China basically uh, acknowledged the sovereignty or territorial integrity of all countries, including Ukraine. So my best guess is that they're not thrilled uh, with what uh, Russia is doing, but also don't, don't necessarily you know, uh, like they also at the same time don't want to call out Russia and like uh, penalize Russia, given that, you know, apparently there's an emerging uh, like limitless relationship uh, at, to use the, the words of, uh, you know, that I think she used uh, about that, that relationship. So that, yeah, that provides Russia a, a good out. I'm going to say, though, it doesn't help so much with regard to oil and natural gas, and especially not with natural gas, because uh, you need pipelines for natural gas, right? And the pipelines line run to Europe, they don't run to China. And so that's not something, if you know, Europe doesn't take natural gas anymore, it's not like you can easily transport it elsewhere. There is not the infrastructure. Oil, you can put on tankers, right? So that may be more feasible. So I think if sanctions, you know, in general, there's, there's gonna be a second best option, but it's still costlier to go to the second best option. And, uh, from the perspective, of course, of the uh, you know sending countries, you want to, and I, I refer to senders as the ones who impose the sanctions. Of course, want to cut out this possibility of evading the sanctions that uh, China may be providing. And the way that would be typically done is through secondary sanctions, right? That you sanction those who break the sanctions. But then you're in a whole nother level of uh, of like dealing with China on that, right? And of course, there's a trade war already going on uh, with China, so. So yeah, I mean, I think from the perspective of you know NATO countries, US, uh, the EU, and other countries in the world, the fact that uh, Russia can rely on some level of support from China is concerning. And I should also say, from a larger international relations perspective here and international order, the fact that Russia thinks it can just invade another country, right, and uh, say it will uh, de demilitarize and denazify it, like let's not even like get started on how insane and wrong this denazification claim is, right? But that implies some some kind of occupation, also by the way, because like denazification happened during occupation in Germany and Austria, right? So what signal is the sending that Russia does that to China with regard to Taiwan? Right. And so this is why the like, I mean, what we're seeing is kind of a real shaking of the foundations of the system, where if one country can just go in and attack another country, right, and like decapitate their government, then like what's to stop China from doing that at some point down the road and with Taiwan, right, or, or Russia doing that, as we said, to other countries. So, I mean, this is like why it's such a 
disturbing moment in history. And it's also disturbing. I was talking to a colleague yesterday um, that it's so disturbing to be like, we were trying to think about why is this so disturbing? It's because Russia is so powerful, right? And it's so hard to figure out what to do with such a powerful country doing something like that. Like other aggression, I mean, there's been much other aggression, of course, uh, you know, since even since World War II, but this one feels a bit different um, because of the because it's a major power with nuclear weapons and has threatened their use too, right? Uh, what was it? Never foreseen consequences uh, of involvement. And on that note, I know that Congress recently put out a vote to remove um, Russia from the UNSC, from the, the Security Council. Do you know whether that's even possible given the way that it's written into the um, enshrined in the UN's charter? Yeah. I, I, I'm also no expert on the like the technical workings of the UN Security Council, but I don't think so. I mean, Russia has uh, you know has a veto power, right? So the and US also has, and I actually didn't hear that uh, US has uh, was attempting to remove Russia. I know that there's a resolution condemning Russia's action in the works that they want to you know bring up today, which is symbolic, right? Because Russia will veto that resolution, and you know China would potentially veto it too. Right, so th this is not going to pass. So it's just a symbolic move. Though I don't want to underestimate or understate symbolic moves either. Right, I mean there it's a clear line that is being drawn here. Right, and like the internet and the UNGA has been very clear in supporting uh, Ukraine also on this. So I mean it still sets like a general tone of expectations internationally, even though I don't think it has any real teeth. I mean. The UN was always going to be hampered, and I'm sure Maurice remembers us from class, right? The UN is only as strong as its member states allow it to be. And, uh, and the fact, I mean, it was all, always going to be hampered in taking action against one of the permanent members. I mean, and that includes in the past against the US. Just an update here. Russia vetoed a United Nations Security Council resolution condemning the illegal invasion of Ukraine. Both China and India abstained. In this Ukraine-Russia uh, crisis, the United States has, you know, wants to be involved. But do you think the United States should continue to police the world as we have done since the end of the World War II? Yes, absolutely. Um, the United States is the de facto leader of the Transatlantic Alliance. Um, it is the only, without the United States, the alliance does not work. Without the United States, the EU is not capable of defending the Baltics from Russia or Poland from Russia. I think uh, the United States has um, a responsibility to be um, a dominant power in the world. And I think if we let the world and world affairs to themselves, a lot of what will go down will not be in favor of the world. So ultimately, with the growth of China and Russia, um, there needs to be a check on global superpowers, especially if China and Russia are not going to... Um, I think essentially if China and Russia don't go along with a lot of what goes down and what people want in terms of the environment, in terms of global affairs, it could pose a threat to the rest of the world. So ultimately, I think the U.S. should should place a check on, on some of these, these global superpowers. It depends on a lot of factors. So when you look in regards to intervention, whether it's political intervention or humanitarian intervention, the United States has always been not always, but in the last six decades has been in this position where they've been this dominant superpower and they've intervened in a lot of conflicts that we are now seeing the repercussions of. And I think the Ukrainian and Russian conflict that we're seeing today is one of those repercussions, but in a different manner. I think with the United States, it's 
best that they don't intervene in this conflict and other conflicts regarding this manner because intervention by the United States does have the potential to start war, especially with Russia. Given the nature of conflicts we've seen in the Cold War, given the nature of conflicts we've seen post-Cold War, especially in Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, and other places, it would be best for the United States to take a more sit-back approach, especially in regards to political and military conflict. That said, I think the United States should intervene if there are humanitarian crises, so if there's any humanitarian and human rights abuses um, that the UN has published as a result of the Ukrainian-Russian conflict, and the United States has the methods and the provisions to be able to send humanitarian aid to people, then they should intervene. But in terms of political and military intervention, I think the United States should pull back and not cause any further conflict, um, whether it's in the region or more internationally. At the end of the day, this isn't about policing the world. This is about making sure things don't up, end up at our front doorstep. Not to say that's where it's headed now, and not to say that's going to happen for sure. But if things are on that trajectory, it's going to be our problem at some point. And if it is, and if we discern that, we need to get involved before it is going to get out of hand. Exactly. And this may have, you know, minimal consequences to the United States in the, you know, 10 to 20 year, but thinking of the 40 to 50 year outlook, um, that can have some pretty serious consequences set as a precedent. Of these eight articles, uh, the security demands that uh, Putin gave in the demilitarization of you know, Eastern Baltic states and subsequent uh, issues, would the actual invasion of Ukraine uh, address any of these? I mean, we don't like it seemed at some point that uh, Russia was, uh, you know, concerned about its security and having NATO on its borders, right? Now, I think this is questionable. I mean, given Putin's rhetoric about, uh, you know, thinking Ukraine should be part of Russia and that the Soviet Union should never have been dissolved, it's not clear that this is a security concern in this way anymore, rather than essentially imperialism. I think that if that was his goal, that he would reduce threat at its border, I mean, I think it's going to be counterproductive, right? Because what it has led NATO to do is to come closer together. President Biden actually did announce yesterday that NATO will fight for every inch of NATO territory, right? So I think that it raises what Russia is, is doing, and Ukraine is raising actually sort of support for Poland and also the Baltic states. That, uh, that, you know, I, I read this morning that apparently NATO will finally activate its rapid reaction force uh, and deploy even more troops in those areas. So I think it's Russia is definitely not achieving that goal of reducing the NATO threat by uh, whatever action, like why, why they would have thought that they would be, I'm not entirely sure. But maybe that's not, wasn't the goal. Maybe it was really that Russia thinks that those countries should be part uh, of, of uh, Russia. It certainly will have the effect of uh, countering uh, Russia more on, on, the, on the NATO level. So it's, they, they should not be believing this is going to increase the chance that they'll get it. On the other hand, the fact that I think Europeans in particular are not being as strong on sanctions, and I should exclude uh, UK, which I think has cracked down more here, uh, can then again, of course, uh, empower Russia to say, oh, maybe they won't do anything if we take the Baltic states or we invade Poland to try to get to Kaliningrad next. NATO as a whole has shown a unified face against Russia with uh, pipeline with the Nord Stream pipelines and uh, economic sanctions. Uh, do you think that this crisis, if it gets uh, you know involved militarily, that this could divide NATO as the United States does not want to commit military personnel 
but that the European allies are, you know, much, much closer to this conflict. I don't really think you can divide NATO by taking uh, the U.S. out. I think that's ending NATO. Um, I do believe our role in NATO is so incredibly large that if we're not for this, the European powers, the EU does not have um, the same resources, not even on the same order of magnitude of which to be able to deal with a threat like this on themselves. I think if the U.S. is going to split, um, you may as well just start calling it something else. I think this just exposes the problems with NATO, ultimately. I think that's like a big thing is like this proved the problems with these uh, these these multinational organizations, ultimately. And like uh, the UN could have similar issues that would be exposed in different ways. But this shows like the the fragility of NATO, ultimately, how there's these there's, there's these like alliances that ultimately when it comes down to it, like it's not going to hold and there needs to be i think reform i think i think it's very important to have a globalized world where people are where countries are uh in check and have alliances to keep each other checked for the for the safety of the global environment for the safety of of, of weakened countries for the safety of the entire world because we are global we're a world that shares this planet we should be connected but i think this proves how weak these organizations are how weak nato is and how there needs to be reform from the or from nato itself we have one last question for you um since yesterday there have been mass protests breaking out across russia and many people were arrested um i think it is uh, we can say with confidence that a lot of russians they are not happy with the war situation and in fact, we actually had a Russian friend who asked us to not refer to this conflict as a Russian-Ukraine crisis, but as a Putin-Ukraine crisis. So um, how do you think the protests, or in general, like the people's opposition to this conflict would play into the whole situation? Do you think they have any effect on what Putin is going to do? I mean, it's a good question. I think it's also the point of your friend made is a good one, right? This is not a war of the Russians, it's this Putin's war. So, and I think that we, we do want to make that distinction. I guess this is like, I mean, this is the thing going forward that will be interesting to see is like, there are a couple of elements that will affect how this plays out. One is, you know, uh, what we talked about, like how strong and punishing will those sanctions actually be? Right, that eventually will be decided on, like how high of a cost will the international community impose on Putin is going to be one factor. Another one is like how strongly can the Ukrainians resist, right? That's both in the in terms of this initial phase uh, of the uh, of the military, you know, of the war, basically. Uh, it sounded like what I read this morning is that the Russians are advancing actually and President Putin's army, I guess I should say, are advancing, is advancing uh, slower than the Pentagon expected towards Kiev, right? Because they are actually encountering some uh, more resistance by Ukrainians. And it's not gonna even, I mean, yes, Russia is clearly qualitatively and quantitatively superior in its military capabilities over the Ukraine. There's no question it will win this war in the sense of how, you know, the US won mission accomplished in 2003 in Iraq, right? It wasn't over then. Uh, so the thing that could we have to um, watch and see what happens then, like if a resistance movement arises, right, and it becomes an urban battle, uh, and so there, like Ukrainians could exert, uh, you know, very high costs on Russian forces also. So that's I think going to be another factor that is going to affect this. And then the third one is the one you raised, which is like uh, domestic politics in Russia. So it's always so hard to know Russian public opinion or any public opinion in a non-democracy, obviously, right? Because they're not fully free to express themselves. 
Uh, and so uh, it's, uh, it's, we do know historically though, to the extent that we trust this public opinion polls that actually uh, President Putin benefited a lot from the invasion of Crimea. His, uh, his approval ratings were 80%. And unlike typical in these rally round the flag effects that we observe, you know, like in other countries, they typically drop off really quickly. Like think about George, uh, President uh, George Bush in, uh, in 1991 or George W. Bush, right? Like they go high, but they also drop off again quickly. That did not happen after Crimea in Russia, right? So he also controls, of course, the information that Russians uh, consume. And uh, my understanding was that the Russian people were sold on this is really uh, the West basically exacerbating tensions here, and it's the West's fault. Now, I think this was before a war started, and you know, Russian soldiers will be killed and have already been killed, right? And what is that going to uh, do in in like to the public opinion there? As you noted, there are protests, and I and they were already you know decently significant yesterday, considering that people are facing significant threats to their you know, physical safety uh, to participate in those, uh, in those uh, protests, right? So the question is, are they gonna expand? And, and then the question is, how willing to repress is Putin? How, how willing is Putin to use force to repress those protests, right? And so that's, I mean, that's gonna be another factor in whether he can go on, like how much force will he have to use domestically and is he willing to do that, right? So all those three things, I think are gonna be um, key factors and seeing how, how this is going to unfold, right? So uh, yeah, and, and you know, things are not great in Russia, my understanding, you know, they have pretty high inflation. And so, you know, there's also this whole uh, uh, IR theory on diver diversionary uses of force, right? When you have domestic problems, you try to have international crises to bolster yourself. And so there's some, potentially some of that playing in there too. I mean, like, who knows, I'm not on, in President Putin's head. Thank God. Uh, I well, I guess maybe I could inform people on that, but but there's a, there's a lot of possible things going on here. We want to note that this is a very rapidly developing situation. We are reporting on this from about two a two days into the um, the invasion. So by the time that this podcast comes out, things definitely will have changed, and some things may be out of date. Please continue to focus um, to learn about this crisis as it happens, um, since it have major implication to the rest of the world and politics and other um, parts of the world too. We recognize the sensitivity of this conflict, and we will keep you updated with the reaction of the international affairs and the United States. Slava Ukraini, Svoboda Russia.